Today on the NASO Video and Podcast, we're joined by Margaret Scotty with her new book, Sailing School, Navigating Science and Skill, 1550 to 1800. North American Society for Oceanic History was created by maritime scholars who met in 1971 at the University of Maine. They recognized that in North America there was no forum for maritime history or a society devoted to the study and promotion of maritime history. The aim of the original group of organizers was to create a diverse organization based initially on Canadian and American membership, which would gain the interest of others. Now there are members worldwide. And it is this diversity of membership that continues to make NASO a truly unique organization. 2020 marked the first year in recent memory that NASA was unable to meet, and therefore we bring historians, archaeologists, and students who are scheduled to present. Welcome to the North American Society for Oceanic History video podcast. I'm your host, Sal Mercagliano. The goal of the NASA podcast is to bring you some of the best historians, professionals, and up-and-comers in the field of maritime history. Today we're heading to Toronto, Canada, and being joined by Margaret Scotty. She's the author of the new book, Sailing School, Navigating Science and Skill, 1500 to 1800, and the winner of the 2019 John Lyman Book Prize in the category of Naval and Science and Technology. Margaret is an Associate Professor of History at York University. Welcome, Margaret, to the NASO Video Podcast. Thanks, Al. Happy to be here. I, I, I'm ecstatic to have you here, and, and as we were talking about just before the, the, the video began, uh, I, I was a former merchant mariner, and so I, I absolutely just devoured the book, uh, enjoyed it immensely. And, and, and the reason I'm holding this book up here is I, I brought props today is <laughs> I actually brought my books from when I was a uh, maritime navigator. So I have my Bowditch, which is what you call this. This is the yeah. American Practical Navigator, my Bowditch. And I both back in the day when there was volume one and volume two, Oof, and, all right. <laughs> and, and all of mine are marked up and edited like crazy uh, yeah. with formulas and, 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 and tables. And, and so I just... Again, you know, I went to school uh, not thinking I'd ever need math when I went to college, right. <laughs> sat through high school, like I'll never use trigonometry, right, right. and then became, last ship I sailed on, I was navigator, and all I did was awesome. trig. That's, that's awesome. all I did. So, so I should ask you, did you use like certain instruments instead of the trig, or you were like, no, I'm doing the math because the math gets me more accurate answers? Well, I, I, you know, the, the funny story, and, and again, there's a great lead into this. So mm -hmm. I, I graduated, I hate to give away my age, but I graduated in 1989. Yeah. And when, when we were doing celestial and terrestrial navigation, yeah. I remember my celestial teacher telling us now that, you know, you need to know this for your license exam, but you'll never use this because uh -huh. <laughs> electronics is coming out and, and, and we're going to have these satellite navigations. Right. And you'll never do it. And the very first ship I sailed on, as soon as we got down in the Caribbean, we're down in the Caribbean after oh. Hurricane Hugo had come through, oh, okay. and all our electronics went out. We had no electronics <laughs> whatsoever, and, and right. we couldn't get it repairs, couldn't get anything, and so all we did was celestial and terrestrial navigation. Yeah. And uh, we didn't have you know the great calculators like you have today with, with, right, with portable right. computers with you. Yeah. So we were doing the trig, we were doing the, you know, we, we were grabbing sun lines, moon lines, you name it, we were, we were yeah. just, just, and it really actually, made me a better navigator because after right. that I never relied on, on electronics when I could take a chance and get a sunline and do a evening star shoot. So what, what you talked right. about in this book, and again, let's get to you, not about me, right. this is, about you, <laughs> is, is, is how navigation developed during this period of time from 15, uh, uh, 1550 to 1800. 
And, and I thought it was, it, it was an amazing uh, a foray. You, you use a couple of historical examples. You go through a series of, of kind of uh, vignette historical examples to talk about this. Uh, and, and I want to get your background. Why pick this topic? It's such a unique topic uh, to really delve into. And, and we'll get into the details of it in a minute. But why this topic for your research? Well, um, a couple different answers. One is I have maritime family on both sides. My dad from the Netherlands and grew up right on the river, the Rata River, um, and loved boats. So we always would go and like tour the harbor and Rotterdam Harbor is, you know, one of the most important and largest in the world. So um, there was definitely sort of um, a love of boats from the beginning. And then my mom is from the Maritimes in, uh, in Canada, so Nova Scotia, and I spent a lot of time there. Um, and I tried, you know, learned to sail when I was a kid and forgot a lot of it. But the thing about learning to sail in Nova Scotia is the weather's not always great. So often we would be doing our, you know, week of sailing camp um, and it was entirely on land because it was too foggy to go out. So we tied a lot of knots. <laughs> um, so anyways, so those are the sort of personal side of why I love this stuff. Um, and then I was working for a rare book dealer and we sold a lot of illustrated books and like really beautiful travel narratives or architecture or whatever. But we also sold some history of science books. Um, and the thing was they only sold if they had interesting engravings like if they had cool diagrams that was easy to sell and there was a whole little section of poor ignored left behind math textbooks um, and i was like wait i think these math textbooks have a story and then as i was applying to go to grad school i was like <clears throat> i think they have a story but i'm not sure i want to spend five to ten to however many years working on math textbooks but could i combine sort of the navigation side, the love of like, of sailing um, with the book history. Um, and it turns out that these navigation textbooks have a lot of the same stories, right? You kind of can hear who, you know, who was the author? Well, you, odds, were, odds were that he was, you know, running a school and wanted to sell some stuff, right? Or maybe he'd invented an instrument. He thought he could get his students to buy it. So anyways, I kind of, took the book history angle into uh, uh, navigation. So those are the, those are the two sides of my story. I, I think I want to talk about the book for a second here, because I think Johns Hopkins is the publisher of your book and they do a fantastic job of illustrating this book. I, I have to say that one of the things <laughs> that, that, that makes the book really appealing is, mm -hmm. is the images that are included in it, both within the text and then uh, the color section in the center, which is just fantastic. I, I mean, I think the illustrations really bring alive a lot of what you're talking about. I know we talk about pictures worth a thousand words, but in right. truth, you know, you really need to understand those images. And I, I think, you know, with this book without those illustrations would be a, still a great book, but I think it, it just makes this so much better. So really kudos to, to Johns Hopkins for putting together. The that. funny thing is that, uh, you know, in the 17th century, like here are these guys who are trying to get their books on the market and trying to sell them. And, you know, and the publishers had the same bias, like, no, illustrations are expensive. They take up extra paper. We don't have money for illustrations. So I sort of felt, you know, sympathy with my authors um, because it's really hard to get a press to pay for uh, for images. And so luckily, um, John Hopkins was like, yes, this book couldn't make sense. And it really wouldn't appeal to as wide an audience if I couldn't explain 
things, right? And you need the diagrams or you need to see, you know, when I talk about volvels, well, those are little spinning discs. If you don't, if you can't look at a spinning disc, then you don't know what I'm talking about. So um, I, I really think, as you say, it, it wouldn't be as accessible as a story if you couldn't kind of take a look at the, I don't know, the manuscript pages as I'm analyzing them. So, and huge thanks actually to my university archivist who, um, when he found out what I was working on, was like, well, we need to buy a manuscript for you, you know? <laughs> so there's this amazing Dutch manuscript from 1705 that is now uh, at home here at York University's special collections. And those are the uh, end leaves. And again, I'm like, if you put the, Im the image of this manuscript, and it's all these mathematical calculations, probably similar to the trig you were doing, but you know, if they were in the page, they would just be tiny, right? But the fact that they can be on the end leaves of the book, I have my book here too, but like <laughs> you can open it up and, oh, hold on. And then at least you can see kind of the whole notebook page, right? And you can zoom in and say, hey, that guy's handwriting is kind of, you know, legible or look at his diagrams or oops, he made a mistake. So anyways, I, I'm kind of grateful to have that extra, like extra space to just show what it was like to, to be, you know, computing all those. It, it, it is so funny you say that because like the end leaves of, of my copies of Bowage are the same exact way. I mean, I, I, have, I, have, sample, I have sample formulas in there and, and, and I remember doing my tests is like, okay, I need, I need an example. Let me put my examples in here. And this is back when I was a student learning how to be a navigator. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thesis of your book, really. You're talking about training of navigators and you're talking about a very unique profession that, that again, I, I think you bring together this idea that navigators are these highly skilled technicians. They're, they're not, you know, the, <laughs> the, the picture, the right. picture, the stereotypical image we have of sailors, they're, they're right. much more than that. Right. And, and I was wondering if you could talk about that, how that goes about and, and understanding. Obviously, there's a need for these highly skilled navigators as the world becomes a much smaller place right. as we're doing circumnavigations of the globe and much longer transits than before. But in how they go about this training, because you also talk about, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, the, yeah. the dichotomy, the, the difference between the training on the ships versus right. on land. Right. So let's talk about them as highly skilled technicians first. Well, so the interesting thing is there's this big shift in the 16th century of you used to have a lot of coastal uh, trade routes. You used to just be kind of repeating the same voyages. So people would have the technical information in their memory. Um, and when things started to be transoceanic, the sort of open water, blue water sailing, all of a sudden you're, you're in a place you haven't been before. Your memory is not you know, going to help you with geography the same way. Um, and one of the arguments of the book is that actually your memory now can be deployed to help you with math. Um, but in, especially in the 16th century when a lot of pilots or navigators were not yet literate, you know, how do you teach them? And in Spain, they were like, you know what, we're gonna just bring them into a classroom and start lecturing at them. And you know, we have these old textbooks from universities. It was a completely illogical way to start training these pilots, um, pilotos. But you know, other European nations were like, hey, the Spanish, you know, the Iberians, like the Portuguese, they're up on this. We want to copy them. So that same kind of university training model gets exported and so we start to see the Dutch doing it and the English and the French everyone is sort of gathering their their navigators into a classroom and that's when you can kind of teach them the definitions or help them work through the mathematics um, and so 
it didn't used to be a requirement that navigators be literate, but really by the 17th century, if you weren't, you were not going to climb up the ladder as quickly. Um, and you needed to be, be able to pass an exam. Um, and so then you start to find people are going to teach you the material you need to know on the exam. So there's a lot of early teaching to the test, which is kind of interesting. Um, and one, I, one question I get is sometimes, you know, aren't we just talking about one navigator per boat and there are hundreds of other sailors? And so you're really just the tip of the iceberg and it's not really a, a really important group. Well, one thing that I really believe is that they were training extra people, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen to your navigator. Is he going to get scurvy? Is he going to die? Like there could be all these tragedies and then your boat is going to be out of luck if you don't have anyone else who can run some numbers. So there's this sort of descriptions in various books about how everyone's gathering around the binnacle at noon to take their observations and then you compare, right? And so usually it's the chief navigator's observations that, you know, are the ones that the boat is going to, you know, follow that day, but other people are allowed to, you know, voice their opinions and what did they get? And, you know, they talk about, you can't just have two observations because how do you know which one's right? So you actually need three. Um, so there's all this kind of group learning. And I think that's one of the ways that a lot of like the pilot's mate would be learning, even though he's not in a position of power yet, he's kind of in the pipeline and, you know, maybe a few years down the road, he'll be able to be a pilot himself. So anyways, it's this whole kind of training program to build up the, the mathematical abilities of a lot of people on the boat. So I don't know. I hope that gets to your skilled technician question. No, um, no, no. I, I, I think it's great. I mean, because you really caught, I mean, again, you know, it, it is a great read the book and, and in the, your introduction, when you talked about this imagery right here, you know, right. talking about the navigators watching the crew moving tobacco, yeah. but the navigators are kind of hands off and, and, yeah. and, and, you know, you start creating that kind of hierarchy within, within a ship structure in, in yeah. some ways. I mean, you always had the captains being that hierarchy, but now you have those officers underneath them and the skill of the navigator for, for, for being, as you said, a, a vital commodities is as important to the ship as the hull and the sails and the cargo it carries because right. if you can't get from point a to point b and, and especially in, in, a, in a proficient amount of time right. you're going to lose potentially money and everything and i was also interested in your concept of it being transnational this isn't one this isn't just you know nationalities creating that you know th this is information that's being shared across which creates kind of the I hate to use a, 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 a terrible phrase, but, but you know, <laughs> brotherhood or sisterhood of the sea type stuff, right. where, where where mariners are going to share this this right. type of information. I thought you could talk a little bit about that and, and how this goes across, because the five examples you use in the book are across different nationalities. We're talking Spaniards, Dutch, uh, English in, in these cases. Right. Um, so when I started this project, I was really thinking like I'd like to figure out how people invented instruments, you know, who gets credit and what happens with these different instruments and did they try and keep them secret? Is there something about like this instrument is our country's and we're not sharing. So I go to the archives and I'm like, all right, find me the secret files on the French Navy. Find me, you know, the espionage, like let, well, it's pretty hard to find uh, evidence of secrecy, right? It's that kind of problem. And a lot of these in, uh, inventions were actually anonymous, right? You're not going to get like, oh, we know so-and-so's quadrant. And like in two or three cases, you have the name of an individual and 
an instrument associated. So I had to change course. I had to say like that project is not going to work because people, if they did invent something they wanted to keep secret, it didn't end up in the archives. Uh, so that flip side became the story that actually there's a lot more sharing of information because you'll find people writing about to say, well, the Dutch use this instrument and the English use that one. We, the French are going to try and use the, the English one. Um, and so there is a really interesting and important book about the 16th century Spanish world, which is called secret science. And Maria Portuando says, you know, at that point, cosmography and navigation were closely guarded by the Spanish crown, but by the late 16th century, that, that, picture has changed completely because you, as soon as you have print, then things get shared across, they get smuggled, they get reprinted. You know, the Dutch market uh, is so happy to have, you know, maps that they can engrave and sell. They translate their atlases into English, into French, you know, they're like, hey, let's sell more books. Let's try and get these, um, you know, there's a market share we can be part of. And so it's, it's interesting to see that like print is actually one of the things that helps spread this information, even though so much of that information was previously kind of, you know, that memory information that you would think harder to share, um, that kind of tacit knowledge, but actually with print, it gets codified and then sort of spread in a very standardized way. Uh, and that's, again, one of my arguments that the French, the English, the Dutch are all copying that Spanish example. And that's why we can start to make interesting, um, you know, comparisons of, well, when we see the French do something different, what does that mean? That means they have a particular problem that is different from what the Dutch are doing and they solve it in a different way. Um, but they were all starting from the same sort of point of origin. So. And I think the, the publication of, 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 textual uh, uh, textbooks and, and, and manuals like this really puts on end the, uh, the concept that all Gutenberg is printing are Bibles, you know, it, right, it, it, right. It, it really, okay. The Bible is a hard thing to print. It's really right. big. It's really long. It takes a right, long right. time and it's really expensive, but here's something that we can put together right, that right. has practical applications that people can begin to purchase and buy. Right, right. And now all of a sudden it can be, it can be out there. And I was really uh, taken by uh, you had a quote in here from uh, Martin Cortez in 1551 yeah. that he set the tone for navigational textbooks for years to come. So I was wondering if you can introduce him and explain why he's such an important person in, in really setting the, the tone for everything you have coming after that. Yeah. Actually, I'm, I'm giving a talk in a couple of weeks on like the book market and selling nautical manuals. And Cortez and Pedro de Medina are the two Spanish examples that I'm going to start with. And what's really interesting is their textbooks are oversized, they're illustrated, they are expensive, and they are clearly kind of aiming not at just the guys who are going to see. They're probably also aiming at, you know, gentlemen merchants and maybe princes, you know, so they're, they're just trying to sell their book. Um, and then that information gets uh, reprinted and condensed into smaller and smaller formats, more and more affordable. Um, but it's, it's sort of the, um, the way that the Spanish approach the problem um, is that kind of old university knowledge that I mentioned. Um, and actually it's this kind of cosmography. So like geography, but it's the science of the heavens. Um, and these are, these are old, old books. Um, 
uh, Appianus, Sacrobosco, and they were sort of initially in the university curriculum to think about like, where are we in the universe? What, you know, what does it mean to be a human on this little planet? Um, and that's what they thought that the pilots needed to know. And so those, those textbooks start with um, what is, what's the equator? What is a pole? Like what's the zenith? What's the ecliptic? So they're really starting with the kind of technical information, which would have been really unfamiliar to, again, semi-literate um, navigators. But you need those concepts if you're going to be out on the open water and you have to look up and understand why you're taking certain angles, why you're, you know, shooting the sun, why you're keeping track of the different constellations. Um, so that cosmography model is really what goes into textbooks and and at least you know 75 to 100 years you can see people following that cortez uh pattern um, he has a chapter on um the winds a chapter on the tides a chapter um on you know tries to explain why I feel like, you know, why the, the year has 365 days, like all of that is in his textbook. Some of that drops out, right? Because it doesn't actually matter to a navigator why the year has 365 days. Um, and then that's when we start to see um, English textbooks shift away from that. And in, instead they teach people um, arithmetic. So we used to have the first chapter be about definitions. Uh, by the 1680s, these textbooks are starting with addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. The Dutch don't need that because their navigators probably took a math class before they went to sea when they were younger. They had already kind of done their arithmetic because it's sort of a more merchant-based society. There's just a lot more numeracy happening. Um, and so those textbooks start with the tides and they're interested in trying to tell you you can't sail out of out of Dutch harbors if you don't know exactly when high tide is happening. Like if you are off, you know, by an hour, you're going to strand your boat on a sandbar. So for them, we need to start with um, the calendar. What day of the moon is it? And what month in the kind of four year cycle? Um, and with that information, you can then compute what time your particular harbor is going to have high tide. Um, so anyways, we start to see these different sort of variations in textbooks on national lines. Um, so no, that's, I, I think that's the quick version. <laughs> but, but I think, I think it's so appropriate because again, I, I keep flipping back to my experience. And, and again, you know, if, if I put, pull up a copy of Bowditch today, you know, right. 35 years after I did it, it's a much different book. It's a one volume book. A lot of the, a lot of the introduction material isn't there that, that was there. Uh, I mean, there's a section in here on how to use a calculator, which I found very funny, you know, <laughs> when, you, when you go back and look at it. And, and, but I think you're right. I think as you look at that evolution and, and it's kind of geared to, to what's the audience and, and, and who it is. If, if it's a Dutch audience, like you said, they're probably a little bit more uh, educated than maybe a Spanish, uh, a Spanish crew would, would it's be. The French, the French are like these poor farmer boys that get, you know, <laughs> pulled to, out to sea. <laughs> they haven't had to read or do any math. So they're in, <laughs> but so I'm glad you have the picture of Bowditch and this Bowditch illustration is not in the book, but it's kind of the end point. I kind of take us up to the 19th century um, as a way of understanding, like, why did this information get codified in this way, right? Why, why is navigation taught this way? And so there's a, a tricky dance because again, 
some people look at textbooks like they're not innovative. They, they're kind of old fashioned. They don't move, they don't evolve in the same way that other kind of books do. Um, and so that's what's so interesting that you have these Dutch books that are, you know, almost verbatim for more than a century. And um, then within that, when you start to see changes, that's again, what I think is cool. But this Bowditch here, so 1802, um, and I think this is the Massachusetts um, edition. So here we are, you know, um, basically taking a British text and updating it, um, improving it, right? The improved practical navigator. He's like, sorry, old British guy, I'm gonna make yours better, uh, make mine better than yours. Um, and then, as you said, it's filled with tables. But look here, this, you know, frontispiece facing the title page is of the solar system. Uh, where are we in the heavens? Why do the, you know, why do the heavenly bodies move in a certain way? How do we do our observations? So that is a throwback to Cortez and Medina and the cosmographical kind of orientation. You can't, you can't think about sailing across a curved surface underneath the curved heavens unless you kind of can understand the solar system. So I was totally tickled to find that, you know, 250 years after they were teaching sailors about the solar system, you know, 1802, there's, they still want people to understand that. So. I, I joke with my students all the time. Before I even get to that, <laughs> I, I do not know anyone who's gone through a maritime education who do not keep Right. Their their books from mm -hmm. from like the navigation. No one keeps their history book, unfortunately. No one keeps their you know, English <laughs> textbook from the class. Right. So, you know, that's a long gone. Right. But everyone I know who ever sailed has got their right. books from the professional right. education on a shelf somewhere, and it's like it's a very treasured possession for them because they will well, always have exactly them. Exactly my argument. Like you know, you used to need to memorize geography, right? And then when we start printing atlases, you don't need to have that in your memory. You can just consult, you know, the, the atlas on your shelf. And so similarly, a lot of these textbooks are filled with like multiple ways of solving one problem. There's like a geometrical way, a trigonometric, you know, use an instrument. And if all else fails, like, here's how to estimate it with your hands. Like there are lots of backup methods. And I, I sort of I keep asking like, do we see multiple methods in math books? Are there other textbooks where we have the same kind of concern that you can solve something several different ways? And I think there's something about, you know, you're out at sea and if you lose your backstaff, like you still need to be able to get your, your ship to safety. So um, I like to see these as like, extra attention to risk management. Um, and then I really think people use them as references. They might not have honestly read every chapter. You know, maybe they just needed to read the chapters they needed to pass the test. But if you were in a tough situation, you knew you had it on your shelf, you could go and say, there's something in that book about, you know, if it's been foggy for a week and I can't take a noon sight, then let's see, what else can I do? Uh, and so you sort of have outsourced your memory into print and you keep it there and you use your working memory for other, other pressing things.
Well, and it goes to the practical application, which is one of the other issues you talked about, which I think is really important too, because, you know, getting a, getting a site, for example, is, is dependent on so many factors. I, I mean, the weather factors, the clouds and everything. I can remember, you know, taking a, a moon line, which is one of the toughest sites ever to do because it's the fastest moving object. Yeah. And, and you always try to do the lower, lower limb of the moon, but if you couldn't get it, you had to get an upper limb and there was different ways to factor right. that in. And, and I can remember going back to my books, like, okay, I got it. I don't remember how right. to do it. Right. Right, right, you know, right. <laughs> but, but, but I, I captured it. I got the time. I got the, I got right. the angle. Now yeah, I got to go figure so cool. it out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so that, I mean, I mean, you're, I'm, again, I'm having 35 year old flashbacks right so now awesome. back, back, back to school. <laughs> but I want to talk about this practical application too, because, because I think that's such a, an important element too, is, is, is it's not just, you know, on the deck plate, so to speak right. on the right. deck learning, right. but also setting up these kind of maritime academies, these, these, right. these kind of hands-on school, you know, you right. joked about making a knot to this day, I could tie right. a, a bowling behind my back, right. you know, <laughs> and it's, it's the most useless tr- Feature uh, a trick I can do, but it's, 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 it's from doing it over and over again, and, and it kind of ingrains in you. I was wondering if you could talk about that because I love this image of the, of, the, of the mock-up ship in the courtyard. Right. And so people have actually researched this ship because it survived for a really long time. Um, so this is the Dutch like training academy in Amsterdam Harbor, um, like right in the center of the city. Um, but it's a later innovation. It starts in 1785. And so what's kind of striking is they didn't need a state-funded central academy until that point. Um, because I think if you wanted to get a job, you went to night school on your own time. You went to summer school, you or winter really probably. Um, so these Dutch mariners were already paying um, for private lessons. But when they get to this uh, the kind of tail end of the 18th century and the Dutch East India Company is on the wane and there's really a lot of concern to make sure that people are absolutely crossing T's and dotting I's. And so you actually see the Dutch kind of, I would say foundering under the weight of all their regulations. Um, But (laughs) I think people have really looked to this uh, training academy because it's got this hands-on component um, so here I've tried to count how many people are in the rigging of this um, this ship and then up on the roof there is sort of a, a platform where you can take observations. There's like um, an armillary sphere up there. So they probably were really taking sights um, on top of the building easier than on top on the boat. But um, so this is a really interesting way of how do you test someone with like actual practical skills. Um, When you look at the records of the English exams, they ask people, okay, so tie a knot for me, future lieutenant, tie, you know, let's see, what would you do? What would you do with the rigging? And it's a a bit of a question. Were they doing this on dry land? Was there a boat moored nearby when they were taking their test and they kind of like pointed to it? Or were they doing it with a small model? Like just one of the, you know, I don't know, however many feet long um, models, which they definitely did have at the Royal Mathematical School. Um, You know, is there anything comparable if you're tying tiny little knots on a tiny little model? Uh, Well, clearly this this particular ship would be a better uh, idea. And so people around the world really look to this Dutch, you know, model of learning on board a ship as superior. So then the French were like, well, we have always admired what the Dutch do. Let's come up with our own training ships. 
And so there was a proposal to tie a ship in the Seine, like right in downtown Paris. Again, not sure that that's really going to, you know, like give you the sense of how to, you know, you know, you're not going to get your sea legs on a ship that's moored in the Seine. Uh, so then there are a couple other examples um, of these little um, boats plying the, the coast. And what do you do? Everyone's, you know, vomiting, they're sick, then they get some other kind of pleurisy. And then, you know, it, there was there was a big problem of, of trying to get your green recruits seaworthy. Um, and the other thing that comes up in the in the evidence is if there is a war you don't want green recruits on your military ships because they're going to get you killed so what do you do and if it's peacetime you're not going to have very many ships sailing and so it's really a problem how do you actually give people sea time without you know putting the whole operation at risk um, so napoleon did not think that you could do this kind of training you shouldn't have um you know like careful keep your <laughs> keep your green green mariners off the boats so i, I think it's a it, it's an interesting comparison today to like simulators and, and a lot of things that are used in in maritime field today the train which is which is really good i mean I, I, there's some fantastic simulators that allow you ship control and ship handling and and, and again you just miss out on that one aspect of of, of uh, a ship rocking back and forth the spray right. in your face trying right. to get a sight right. you know which it which can only be done when you're out in the middle of the ocean or like you said you know get green the first time the first time you, you get seasick right. and and the and, other and, thing that's kind of interesting there are these records of like different teachers and they really did the royal navy hired a lot of guys to to teach onboard ship and the problem is you only find complaints, right? You're like, ah, oh, this guy's too serious. He's like making us sit here for too many hours. And so you're like, well, that particular teacher might have not been the best, you know, pedagogically. But like maybe some of the other guys that don't find their way into the records were actually quite effective, you know, like you're, you're only going to find the kind of squeaky wheels that are unhappy. But these other teachers that, you know, are kind of gone from our, our memories, they might have actually been, okay, we're going to teach you a little math today and we're going to do, you know, a few sites tomorrow. And then if the weather's good, we're going to, you know, give you the day off. And then if the weather's bad, then you're going to work some observations for me. You know, so um, I think some of that happened and it's hard for us to recover it. Um, no, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, my my college experience was at State University of New York Maritime College in, in a four-year college. And, you know, we did the classroom experience. And then every summer we took our school's training ship out for two months. Awesome. And I, I, can, <laughs> I, can, I can remember, you know, being bored to death in the classroom and like, uh, this is terrible. But when you got out on the ship and all of a sudden you had to practically experience it, it was, it was a much different aspect. I, I liked my teachers on the ship much more than my teachers in the classroom. I'm, I'm sure my teachers love hearing this now, but, but it, it, it's, it's, I think you, you get that practical experience and, and you, you know, you're seeing how, how what you're learning is being applied directly, which I, I think is a unique thing in the maritime training aspect. Your book is structured. So you have a series of, of, of chapters and you, you jump around, you go, you start in Seville in 1552, you go to Amsterdam in 1600, Dieppe, 1675, London, 1683, and the Netherlands in 1710. I want to go through all of them, but I want to go to the end because I think, I think your last chapter is a really interesting one because the chapter is entitled Lieutenant Rios is put to the test in, in, in the Southern Indian Ocean, 1789, which I think is a great culmination of everything is in a, I wonder if you can talk about who Lieutenant Rios is and what happens to him as, as a kind of venue to talk about everything in the book. 
Yeah. So um, talking about like kind of archival serendipity, I um, turned my dissertation in in April or the last week of May of March. And then uh, April, I fly to England. I'm going to a conference at Greenwich. I'm like super excited. This is awesome. Center um, of the world, Greenwich. England. I that's know, a, right? A, always the center of the world. <laughs> right. So I give my talk, which is on like the Spanish school system and, you know, um, and then I've got extra time. So I'm like, I'm going to go to the archives because I'm right here in the same building at, you know, the Royal um, Maritime Museum, no, National Maritime Museum, Royal Museums Greenwich. Um, and so into the Carrot Library I go. And I'm like, well, I was here a few years ago. Let me see what else I didn't get in that first pass of their kind of relevant um, manuscript material that's both like navigation but also mathematical. So I call up some things and I find this whole set of documents by this Edward Ryu. Um, and he is this lieutenant, okay, um, but there's a lot of interesting stuff and what I have kind of realized about him, he must have been super meticulous and like a really great record keeper. There's actually a letter from him to his mother. It says, I've misplaced one of my important nautical workbooks. Can you please save it if you find it? Because it's got very important information. Well, lo and behold, it's in the collection at the CARED. And it's not filled with very important information. It's filled with his doodles. It's filled with like his complaints about how tedious it is to be, you know, you know, stranded off the coast of Newfoundland in the November fog, like, um, but his mother saved it. Um, and then ultimately after his death, all of his materials end up at the archives. And so that's why I actually have records of this young naval officer and the trigonometry homework he did when he was 14 years old. Um, so he was from this family where his brothers went to the army, but he was going to go to the Navy. Um, and so he had what I think is probably private tutors at home. He does these beautiful, you know, kind of perspectival views of ships and he works through these math questions, saves it all. Then he gets to uh, sail around the world with Captain Cook. Then he, again, spent some time off of the coast of Newfoundland, but he's twiddling his thumbs. There's not really a great posting for him. And then he's asked to be the captain of the second uh, ship taking supplies to Botany Bay in Australia. And so there have been, there's been one transport with convicts and they send those guys off to Australia. And then they realize, hmm, we're setting up this new penal colony. We need to supply it. So Ryu, you're in charge. And the Royal, uh, Royal Society, Joseph Banks, kind of outfits the ship with a certain uh, select number of, of livestock, um, rabbits, you know, deer, cattle, um, sheep, and then also um, builds a little greenhouse on, on the deck. And in, in that greenhouse, there's like a whole sort of set of, of interesting and important plants that the British think that they should introduce to the Australian outback. Um, and then supplies like hats and, and shoes and salt beef and wine, all this stuff. So this boat is like laden with things. There's only 24 convicts on this boat. And this is 1789, Ryu heads south from England, puts in at Cape Town, and, you know, basically gets fresh water. This is December, uh, and the goal is to head south to uh, Botany Bay slash Sydney. Um, 
So we don't know exactly what happens. We don't know why, but within a few weeks of leaving port, they're low on water. And I don't know if it's that the, you know, livestock was drinking too much or what, but uh, Ryu notices this iceberg. Uh, and he's like, oh, well, I remember Captain Cook, when he saw an iceberg, went and harvested floating chunks of ice. Let's try that. So Sal, the next time you're in the Southern Indian Ocean and short of water, guess what? <laughs> I don't know, drink ale, but like don't go <laughs> after the iceberg, the floating ice chunks, not a good idea. <laughs> um, so anyways, they get too close to the iceberg and a huge chunk of its, you know, hives off and staves in uh, the stern, takes out the rudder. Um, and so Ryu, swings into action. And this is kind of remarkable because uh, we have blow by blow record of what he does. And he divides people into two groups and he says, pump, we've got five pumps. One's not very good. Okay, so we've got four pumps. The pumps keep breaking. Don't worry, you guys have got this. Meanwhile, people are actually like leaping off the boat, you know, getting drunk and just abandoning ship. It's Christmas Eve. It's gotta be cold. Like it's just, you know, horrendous, right? And so, um, as many people as, as can get into the ship's boats. Um, most of them are not seen again, but one of these boats does make it um, and is rescued um, by some, a passing French vessel. So of course, Ryu stayed with the ship, right? He kind of gives this impassioned speech about how he's gonna you know, oversee the guardian, keep, keep her afloat. Um, and so then the master is on the smaller boat that had been rescued and he sends a report to the papers in London to say, well, Edward Ryu has gone down with the Guardian, you know, it's very sad. That, I think it was April that things got published, right? So this accident happened in December. Um, it just took that long for the word to get back to the press. Four days later, a new letter arrives in London and gets printed and says, hey, <laughs> the Guardian didn't go down. Edward Ryu and the whole ship made it back to South Africa. Um, and so basically there was two months where he was, you know, keeping this crippled ship as, as close to on course as he could. Um, he was going back to his reference library to try and make sure he was pouring through what, you know, where would, had Cook been? Is he going to hit Madagascar? Because he doesn't know much about Madagascar. I mean, he's got one guy on board who had rounded the Cape before. And so they're really hoping that they end up somewhere that they can manage. And, and fortunately, they, I don't know, the, the ship must have just drifted or, you know, it wasn't drifting, but, you know, just made it um, west enough that they missed the really treacherous water at the Cape. Um, and end up back in Table Bay almost two months after they had this huge accident. So it, it's, an <laughs> it's an amazing story. It's why right? I wanted you to share. It, it was, it, and it, and to me, it really put together a lot of the, the subject matter you were talking about, which I, which I thought was just a, a great encapsulation. Right. Of so it. I just sort of think, like, if I hadn't gone to that conference, I wouldn't have found this material. I wouldn't have this piece that's like just such a perfect example of like a guy who did a lot of math and then had actual practical experience and then couldn't have gotten out of this problem without both of those things. So, and thank goodness he wanted his mom to keep all of his records. 
<laughs> well, again, all mariners love their mothers, so that's it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's like a universe, universal. <laughs> they don't all love math, but <laughs> no, no, they usually don't. Uh, I, I want to ask this one last question, and that's regarding the research on this. Uh, okay. Your bibliography is is yeah. amazing. I mean, it's an extensive bibliography and research. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, how you handled that. What, what were some challenges, obviously, uh, in doing this? You're doing multiple languages across the board. Right. Uh, what were some of the biggest hurdles you had in, in doing the research for this? Uh, so what's really interesting is I started this research in 2007. Um, and a huge amount of things have been digitized in that 13 years, but really mostly in the last five years or less. So if I wanted to have evidence of what these early Dutch textbooks were, those weren't digitized in 2007 or eight or nine. So I would go to the archives and just take thousands of pictures, right, of all these textbooks. And I have to confess that I skipped a lot of the tables. Like, I'm not taking pictures. Well, how can the tables be different? And now I'm like, oh, I wonder, actually, it'd be really interesting to compare these early Dutch textbooks, how their trig tables differ from the ones in the, you know, English textbooks. Um, so I just brought, like, it was the, the kind of huge, like, I don't know, finding mission, like what's out there, what kind of manuscripts are interesting, what counts when you call up, if you go, you know, to the military archives in Paris, what are you going to find? Um, and because I did this huge survey, um, I started to find these similarities. And they're like, wait, I've seen these same diagrams, these sort of like, like circles where they're trying to find, you know, the declination of the sun here, this is a, a French manuscript, but I'm sure I've seen these in Dutch manuscripts. And so that's what helped me come up with the story. Um, and that was where it was really like, the similarities are remarkable. And you wouldn't necessarily have expected that you have to, um, if you think about how so much maritime history is pretty uh, nationally focused, um, like the Brits want to focus on the Royal Navy, you know, the French are really, really thorough about the French Navy and its captains and its training, but they don't compare it to how, you know, what the Dutch were doing at the same time. And I was like, this is, this is the angle, actually, to say, all these people are tackling the same problem. Um, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have realized that if I hadn't just gone into every archive and called up everything that had to do with navigation. So um, it was a very, a uh, long and big project, but uh, really, I think, satisfying. So, <laughs> No, and, and like you said, I, I think it brings up a universal, uh, universality, too, of, of, of how commerce and navigation is, is universal. It, you know, even though we, we get so fixated in mercantilism and, right. and this, this, this empire building of these individual nations, the, this aspect of it really crosses those national lines, which I, I thought was a, a, a very salient point because these mariners have got to learn how to overcome new challenges and, and deal with, you know, transoceanic voyages and, 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 and multi-oceanic voyages, not just one ocean, but right. multiple oceans yeah. and, and, and what they can learn from each other and, and what they can call from each other to get a, a leap over them and, and, and continually kind of go back and forth, which is, you know, very much business and economics today in the maritime industry. Right, right. And I mean, the cool thing is that, you know, there are similar examples of these manuscripts in Germany and I think also in the U.S., right? If, you know, like I've spent a little time at the John Carter Brown Library, but also other archives in, in Rhode Island, um, there are really similar manuscripts. And I think hopefully, you know, the kind of argument I make in the book 
applies to these other locations too, right? We can say, this is not, you know, starting with tradition and going to like modern, amazing mathematical prowess. Like the, the argument is people really had mathematical knowledge at the beginning uh, and they keep tradition at the end, right? So instead of seeing it as like this, you know, arc, you know, great kind of historians are, you know, reacting against, you know, Whig history, right? We don't want to just say this is a, a, a narrative of progress. This is a narrative of, it was actually really complex and impressive at the beginning. And it continues in different ways, but, you know, let's keep both, both parts at play here. This is really hybrid technical knowledge the whole way through. No, and I, I think for a historian, you, 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 you also give good warning, you know, you can run down a rabbit hole here and, 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 you know, you, you, you focused on English, Spanish and Dutch in a very, you know, finite period of time. You, you're still spanning, you know, several centuries here, but you, you I mean, you, this could turn into something right. huge and massive and, 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 and literally unmanageable. But I think you did a great job of, of, of putting that together into a very readable format and, and interesting, you know, when, when I have to teach a course and, you know, in a survey course and I got to teach the scientific revolution, you know, right. I can use the examples of the text book, which they use 10,000 different times right. in the past. And, but I like to, you know, bring up, you know, James Cook and, and use the right. Cook voyages to talk about scientific revolution. This is a different application. Here's an, here's a physical application right. of the scientific revolution. Let's look at how he uses all this in there. And that's what I got from, from your book. I enjoyed it immensely. Thanks so much, Sal. <laughs> I want to thank our guest, Margaret Scotty, for joining us for our NASO video podcast. We will have a link to all her works in the show notes below. Uh, if you liked our video podcast, be sure to click like on YouTube or give it five stars on your podcast provider. Please subscribe to our channel to receive updates as we continue to interview maritime historians. You can follow NASO on Facebook or on Twitter at NASO underscore history. The best way to follow NASO is to become a member. As such, you receive our newsletter, our quarterly journal, The Northern Mariner, which we publish jointly with the Canadian Nautical Research Society. You can go to www.naso.org and click on membership to join. Until our next talk, keep sailing.